I think that I'm the luckiest person in the world. Not only that I had implant on time, I became deaf when there were implants. What I learned to know for myself and what I learned to know from patients is that sensorineural hearing loss is treatable. It is absolutely possible to improve access to speech. In this episode, A Unique Perspective of Hearing Loss, we'll talk to Professor Mikhail Luntz from the Ear and Hearing Center Aram at the Asuta Medical Center in Tel Aviv, Israel, who will explore the growth and trends within cochlear implant hearing technology from a unique perspective as a physician, surgeon, scientist, teacher, and someone with hearing loss. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Professor Luntz, uh, thank you for joining us on Hearing Health today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Just by way of introduction, where are you speaking to us from today? It is my pleasure first. I'm very uh, grateful for this opportunity because I'm always happy to talk about hearing and implants and hearing aids. Right now, I am uh, on a family vacation in New Hampshire. Normally, I am in Tel Aviv. Well, thank you for taking time to speak to us on your family vacation. Really appreciate that. One question that we always ask our guests just to get to know you a little bit better before we dive into the topic is what inspired you to pursue a career in hearing healthcare? So going into medical school was uh, probably uh, due to too much exposure to medicine. My mom was the head nurse of hospitals and then at the army, I was paramedic and instructor for evacuation by air. Again, a lot of exposure. And eventually I decided that if uh, I wanted to go into medicine, but I knew that it will be uh, day and night medicine and nothing else. And uh, I decided that I will decide between all the other options if I get accepted into medical school and that would happen. So I had to give up uh, agriculture international relationship, history (laughs) and archaeology. The easiest thing to give up was art, sculpture, because a new inspiration is needed. And I said that I thought I don't have any right now. When it comes, it didn't come yet. So I was left with medicine. And the decision about ENT, uh, honestly, it was just because out of the alternatives, they really wanted me. I felt that this is the place where people wanted me the most. And uh, in life, in general, I go to the easy places. Uh, I, <laughs> so I, it was that was the decision. And within it, it was uh, this department was focused on autology. Okay. And a few years after I finished my residency, I felt that I need to uh, have more experience in surgery. I, I, I felt that I'm not a good enough surgeon. So I looked for a fellowship in otology. And then I already knew that I also want to learn uh, to be a specialist in uh, also in cochlear implantation and hearing. And uh, again, I had several places, several interviews in the U.S. And uh, the place where I felt I'm uh, most welcome was in Miami. 
And okay. so I had my fellowship. That's how I came into autology. And so I understand you have a hearing loss as well. Is that right? Yeah. I have two implants. And did you have diagnosed hearing loss before you went into medical school? About two years before, I was incidentally diagnosed with a height and loss while I was uh, in the Air Force. Okay. So they just picked me up for, let's see uh, mm-hmm. how hearing test is done. Soldier come over and then we, uh, we saw it. I was not surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best friend, she was not surprised. She always said, mm-hmm. I told you you are deaf. <laughs> <laughs> And did that play uh, a part in your decision to pursue a career in otology? First, it was because the residency mm-hmm. was in a, an ENT department, which was focused more on otology. Okay. So I knew more about otology. And then I moved to, as an otologist already, to uh, not really otologist, but more focused on otology. As a senior, I moved to uh, from uh, Sapir Medical Center to Shiba Medical Center. And Shiba Medical Center, I did only ear surgery, but still felt that I'm not a good enough surgeon, as I told you before. Sure, yeah. So I decided to become uh, more professional. And I applied for a fellowship. And I looked for otology and... Tom Balcony and his department seems to be uh, the nicest I saw, and they really wanted me to come. So uh, I decided to go again where I'm uh, more so-called wanted. Okay, perfect. Just shifting gears a little bit, what did the hearing landscape look like when you grew up with undiagnosed hearing loss in Israel? I was not considered hearing impaired. But now I try to recall what happened actually then that I knew nothing about hearing loss. So when I grew up, actually, I didn't meet any, almost any hearing impaired individuals. Yeah. I happened to see some children with uh, huge hearing aids that I didn't hear them speaking. And Mm -hmm. I just look at these huge hearing aids and I understood that this is indeed a stigma for a hearing loss, meaning that. If a child has such hearing, hearing aids, he, he, he has a hearing loss. Mm-hmm. And the only person that I eventually knew she had a hearing loss was an aunt of my, my father. Then as a medical school, I lived next to the uh, Micha School for the Deaf in Tel Aviv, which okay. is one of the best. I, I think it's a very, very good school. And many of these students at that time, uh, there were no implants. Sure. Uh, they okay. were actually there were, but not in Israel. And why was that? Why were they not in Israel? Because it was before eighty two. Okay. In Israel, we have implant. We have implant sure. only in Israel only since eighty nine. Okay. I was again didn't really understand more than that, and uh, at that time I actually had a hearing loss diagnosed only two years. But I didn't uh, look at it as hearing loss because the one who sh- saw me said that it is nothing. It is not going to impact my life, and uh, the only thing that I should do is going to discotheques. <laughs> okay, sorry. 
Did you catch your hearing loss? So you said it was caught as part of a screening in the Air Force. Not part of screening. Oh, no. I had a course after finishing basic training and paramedic course. There was a course for instructing evacuation by air. Okay. And the course was in the same place where a qualification for the pilot course yep, yep. Uh, is done. And they showed us all their facilities and they just picked me up just to show to oh, the Oh, okay. So you were part of like a demonstration. And then demonstration. Just, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And the, and the guy, I thought that the guy who did it, the audiologist at that time, I thought he's very old. He wasn't. But he was so white that I thought that something was going to happen to him. Oh. And <laughs> so he was. So he wasn't expecting to pick anything yeah. up either. So, yeah. so I was. So white is connected to uh, the, land, the landscape at that time, because mm-hmm. at that time, uh, sensorial uh, hearing loss was considered incurable. Mm. It is still incurable. But it was also considered as something that uh, the treatment for it is not good mm-hmm. and actually not effective. And it went very well with my view over those I knew who had hearing loss. Mm-hmm. And actually, they were not involved in society. Uh, so uh, it was incurable and a hearing aids were not effective uh, there was nothing to do. And the last thing I thought I'm going to, to do is actually ENT at that time. So you received the diagnosis that you had a, a mild hearing loss. Is that right? There was no, I, uh, it was identification, actually. Okay. It was, it was just, there was, was we just did a, nothing. Okay. We, we did nothing with it. It is nothing. And uh, my mom uh, also said, you know, you are my only hearing child. She meant the only one that listened to me. Okay. My brother, <laughs> my brothers were there. My brother and sister were very, very, um, they had free spirit. They did what they feel like doing and uh, they didn't listen very much to other people. Sure. So they were very creative. And uh, <laughs> so I was listening. I was uh, the only one. So this was the landscape when it was diagnosed. And it is very different uh, in terms of technology from now. The only thing which is really similar is mm-hmm. that people are still expecting for cure. They're yeah. looking for cure. And there is almost nothing in medicine that we can cure. We can treat. Mm-hmm. We can help a lot. But except for stable fractures that, uh, and maybe some of the immunizations and some antibiotics, there are very, very few things that we really cure. Cure is by nature and natural history in yeah. general for most things. So we treat. We do not cure also today. Given your history with hearing loss, has that affected the way that you approach treatment with your patients? I think it's uh, affected mm-hmm. because I had hearing aids consistently. Mm-hmm. Only when I was already uh, chairing the department in Haifa, Nature and Medical okay. Center. All right. So until then, I didn't have uh, hearing aids consistently. Consistently meaning that at work, uh, while socializing and at home, whenever I am among people. Yeah. First, I started at work and so on. I didn't consider myself uh, hearing impaired exactly because I thought that there is no real cure. Mm. That's the point. 
and my first experience with hearing aids when were not very good. I tried, I tried all the time, mm-hmm. but they just didn't work. And then when they started to work throughout a very short time, I used many types of hearing aids. It started with all in the ear analog and then uh, I moved to digital the digital mm-hmm. hearing aids came and the digital hearing aids were huge change for the better huge change for the better the hearing was deteriorating all the time so I had to change to improve the hearing aid and I had to change them but maybe three times to more and more powerful and then I called my teacher my mentor who was Tom Balkany and I told him that uh, Unfortunately, he has to operate on a family. And uh, after two months, it was June 2003 or so, and two months later, I was I had an implant already. During this period, these six years after I became a chairperson, I also developed my uh, vision about how to run a department, how to teach residents. And I also, uh, together with the team, I established the uh, cochlear implant program in my hospital, which was actually the reason, one of the reasons or one of the aims that I uh, was supposed to accomplish, one of the things that I was supposed to do. And uh, while doing it, I still didn't think that my hearing loss has any impact, but retrospectively, it, it did have an impact. I developed my view. Yeah, tell me more about that. What's your vision, your view on treatment of hearing loss? My view was actually that uh, in contrast to what I uh, thought before, I understood that actually sensorineural hearing loss is treatable. Mm. And now I knew that uh, you don't tell it to yourself, but actually I personally knew, but I didn't appreciate it actually. So uh, it is absolutely uh, possible to improve access to speech, also to people with sensory neural hearing loss. And before they used to say that, ah, sensory neural hearing loss, loss case. I can't tell what I learned to know for myself and what I learned to know from patients. Usually you learn more from patients. But I learned to know that although hearing technologies are not perfect, nothing is perfect in this world, but they are very effective and very reliable. And I learned to know that, that I, I learned to know personally that whenever a company says that the hearing aid or the upgraded version of the hearing aid or the uh, sound processor of the implant is better, it is indeed better. You may not be able to sense it in the first moment, but it is indeed better. And more expensive hearing aid is usually better or even much better than the less, than than the cheaper one. And I, the most important thing maybe is that life is here and now. Yeah. Do you see patients of all different degrees of hearing loss or are you mainly a referral center for folks who are in the severe to profound category? We were accepting all kinds of patients, but as a chair, I decided not to sell hearing aids in order not to compete with the hearing aid companies around us. We had two big ones. And so we did see patients with also mild and uh, moderate, 
severe, severe to profound, not profound. But eventually, we actually actively treated the ones who uh, needed either follow-up because sure. of deterioration or they needed cochlear implants. And it was the first center in North Israel and for many, many years, the only one. Okay. And at the time, though, this was the only center that was treating with um, implants. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. How do you counsel a patient when you see a patient that has severe to profound hearing loss might meet the indication criteria for a cochlear implant? What does that counseling conversation look like, um, given your background and history experience in the hearing industry, both personally and professionally? I don't think that there is any specific uh, secrets for uh, that I have and some other people have. It is just the same, I guess. Maybe I pity the patient less uh, by now because life is here and now. There is no time to postpone life and there is no time yeah. to postpone fitting of hearing aids and there is no time to postpone cochlear implants. As a doctor, it has nothing to do with hearing loss, by the way, but as a doctor, yeah. we were taught to choose the best alternative for the patient according to his best interest. Mm -hmm. And if I believe that the best interest of the patient is a cochlear implantation, there's an indication for cochlear implantation, implantation mm -hmm. meaning that this patient is going to benefit from mm -hmm. cochlear implant implantation far more than he may benefit from any other alternative my job is to explain him whatever I can about uh, the procedure. And uh, the procedure is not only the surgery, of course. And, uh, and then I, I have to succeed. Usually, this kind of evolvement over the years, I try to deliver it to the patient. I have to show him in some ways that mm -hmm. he might benefit really from the procedure. And in order to be able to do that, I need a good and simple and fast evaluation tool that deals with the sense of hearing or with the hearing itself. First of all, there is no standard evaluation. I know that in the U.S. there is some kind of standardization. Mm -hmm. uh, in Israel, there is no standardization. But I think that very few people would disagree that... Mm -hmm monosyllabic words represent as good as possible the uh, ability to understand the building blocks of speech mm -hmm. and with as little redundancy as possible. So, and I'm not an audiologist. I'm a doctor. I also, mm -hmm. I'm a surgeon. I also have to be able to understand it in a straightforward way, intuitively. You mentioned in the past and in some of your um, previous interviews that you're really passionate about self-advocating. Can you describe a little bit about what that is? I'm advocating for a free access to the society uh, means. I think that I'm the luckiest person in the world, not only that I had implant on time, I yeah. became deaf when there were implants, but uh, also uh, usually when I come to meetings, it has been uh, since I had hearing aids and uh, people are not using microphones, 
and uh, like it's a, a big room and people are asking questions and I really want to hear what they ask. And I fly thousands of miles, like everybody else, and then I cannot hear. So I, I uh, almost always would ask to uh, use microphone if they don't use. Or I would do my best to connect my mini-mic. I didn't want to offend them. Just, I just wanted to hear and to be able to be part of the, of the scene. So I think that it was self-advocating that's the, maybe the only field that I felt I need to do it. And in general, I try to uh, convince society mm. to uphold its duties for disabled people, including the deaf. So in this uh, regard, I, I try to do whatever I can do. I understand that you did play a role in getting um, coverage for cochlear implants for adults in Israel. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what that journey and process looked like? I think that in 1999, children were reimbursed in full Mm -hmm. and there was a a decision to include them in full in the health basket and adults for 30%. I was so happy it is at least they don't have to pay all of it. And then in uh, after I had my own implant, uh, I thought that it is a time to submit uh, the uh, application for adults in full. And I applied in uh, 2004 or five, mm-hmm. and it was not accepted. And in 2006, the lady who was actually in charge of applications, she called me asking me to uh, resubmit the application to give cochlear implants to every adult, children, it was already there, to every adult who can benefit from it. In your center, you treat both children and adults? No, now just adults. I wanted to uh, mention something. In Israel, all children who uh, need cochlear implants, who are born deaf, and uh, are, not, are not expected to benefit, to develop language fast enough with hearing aids, mm. can get implants and immediately. How do you think technology is going to evolve in the way that we treat hearing loss? I think that, uh, uh, first of all, the future is here. Mm. And it is uh, true for the particular patient, and it is true for the technology. Mm. The technology, the digital technology is so advanced Mm -hmm. that with AI, we can do so many things. Mm -hmm. And somehow the target population does not benefit from it as much as uh, it could. I see actually uh, three uh, themes. There is still a lot of work. So it is penetration. Mm -hmm. It is service. And it is, yes, innovation. Yeah. So regarding penetration, I do have thoughts about uh, what can we do in terms of uh, convincing uh, people that hearing loss is not a stigma. Yeah. What could we do as an industry, as a society to help remove the stigma? Well, society has a lot to do. Mm-hmm. But if industry solves the industry problems, then it will support penetration. But the penetration is uh, closely related to the service and is also closely related 
to the innovations. I'm much more convinced than I was five years ago about the need for digital uh, medicine in uh, cochlear implantation specifically. Innovation has to do with digital medicine that what I demand today, I wouldn't even dream if you talk to me uh, maybe even 10 years ago. Sure. I wouldn't even dream of those things. And the reason is that cochlear implant technology is actually a very mature technology. Professor Luntz, it's been fascinating talking to you today and learning about the hearing industry and the hearing care industry in Israel. So I really appreciate the time that you took out of your family vacation to join us on Hearing Health today. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you. We've received some amazing feedback from our listeners around the world, and we'd love for you to share your perspectives with us. Click the link in the podcast description to share your thoughts. Stay tuned for our next and final episode of Season 2 of Hearing Health Today, when we speak with Dr. David Kelsall about the future of hearing care from a surgeon's perspective. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary, and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.